Thank you, Pastor Ron. My grandpa on my mom's side would have been 111 right now. His name was Searle. He used to call me a rascal. I didn't know what a rascal was. Still kind of iffy. But that's a slang word that's pretty, pretty much dead. Well, I'm going to introduce to many of you a slang word that many young people are using today. The word is adulting. Adulting is a funny term, mostly used by 20-somethings who are proud of themselves for doing something that most responsible people already do. And uh, on the screen, if I had to really take a stab at a real definition, carrying out one or more of the duties and responsibilities expected of fully developed individuals. This might mean changing your oil before the light comes on, Uh, paying a bill on time, showing up on time. Adulting is what young people say when they marvel at something they did that's increasingly adult. Because growing up's not easy. And if we look at what's behind that, we can see that before we are adults, without knowing it, we are enjoying something we don't know that we have as kids, which is protection in the form of ignorance, in the form of naivety. The protection of being generally clueless of what adults have to do, should do, don't want to do, but still do. Think about it. As a kid, your dinner magically appears on the kitchen table. You didn't buy it, you didn't make it, and you're not cleaning it up. When you're a kid, if there's a tragedy in the world, your mom would just hide the newspaper or cover your ears and eyes when the news was on. Think about prior to 20 years ago, you could go weeks or months without knowing how a movie ended. You could go weeks or months without knowing who won a game. You could go years before you met or saw Aunt Hannah's new baby. But as we begin adulting, that childlike ability we used to have to enjoy being clueless about reality, it starts to slip out of our hands. The realities of a fallen world start coming down on us, and they hurt. Realities like cancer, job loss, a death in the family, failure. All these harsh parts of a very fallen world start to tear down our ignorance. Now, in addition to dealing with the realities of a fallen and broken world, as we grow up, we have to start to deal with what I'm calling the complexities of life. The complexities of life are the parts that make life on earth with other humans messy. Life gets messy when people disagree. Let me give you an example. If you're newly married and you're having to try to agree on exactly what the word clean means, (laughs) maybe you've heard of that. Or you have a roommate and you're trying to agree on what the word quiet really means at one in the morning. Those are easy examples, though. The complexities of life and the different views humans have on them gets down to our core on a cellular level. Here's what I mean. Life gets complicated when, as a culture, we have to be forced to try to agree on very heavy-duty subjects. Let me give you a little list. Right and wrong. What's right and wrong? And who gets to decide what it is? What makes a human a human? When is a human a human? 
What is marriage? Who gets to decide? Is having a baby outside of marriage wrong or is it cool? Sexual activity outside of marriage, is that okay or is it not okay? What is a man? What is a woman? Who decides? And what even is good? What is virtuous? Who decides? Because when you look at a list like this and realize that how we answer those questions shows at a root level what your worldview is. Every human is wearing a pair of worldview glasses. Every one. And fewer and fewer of us humans on the planet are sharing the same prescription. Apologist Ravi Zacharias describes what I'm talking about in a helpful way. He describes it like this. A worldview, this is on your notes, offers answers to four necessary questions regarding origin. Why am I here? What am I doing here on this planet? Meaning, what gives me significance? What what defines me as a person? Morality, what's right and wrong? And destiny, what happens after you die? He says that our worldview is the ultimate lens, the glasses through which you look at the world, which shapes how you see reality. And humans, if we're honest, we've never agreed entirely on one worldview. As a result, people have always behaved in response to whatever their worldview is. So we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that our world is not a fairy tale. It is broken. The world, as the Bible has described, is fallen. It is not as God desired it. As humans, we do not behave and live as God created us to. God created this world perfectly, and He called it good. It started good. According to Genesis 1, God created the man Adam in His own image. In Genesis 2, He formed a woman. And Moses talks about this specific pairing and this specific structure that God planned for it to flourish in. He talked about a father and a mother, a marriage, a family. This is why, Genesis 2, a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Even at the beginning of time, we see God's good plan to form the world. And these primary pairings were his plan to do it. A man and a woman, a father and a mother. The family was going to be this divine superstructure to spread human flourishing. And Genesis says it over and over that God looked at his creation and said, this is good. But since Adam and Eve rejected God's plan, our world began to decay. It began to decline from God's plan. So don't panic. The craziness in our world today isn't new. It's a different kind of crazy, but it's not new. Because a downward spiral began when Adam broke the fellowship he'd been given with God. And unlike every human being since then, Adam and Eve were born in holiness and with the ability to stay holy should they choose, but it didn't stay like that. We read in Genesis how Adam and Eve were lied to by the enemy, and it really boils down to Adam trusting what Satan said more than what God said, and as a result, he disobeyed God. And that fellowship God intended to have with his creation, humanity, was broken. It was gone. The first human had sinned. He'd sinned against his creator. Instead of being sinless as God, as God had purposed, Adam became sinful. 
He was guilty. He was now warped towards sin. What had been a pure image of God in him was now dirtied and broken. And ever since then, it's like Adam's genetic chromosomes passes through the generation, causing every person, every person, to come into this world with a devastating resemblance to their first father, Adam. Every human being since Adam has been born in sin. Listen to what this writer, Daryl Wingard, says about this. He says, people do not become sinners when they sin. They sin because they're sinners by nature. Just as a newborn baby rattlesnake possesses lethal poison and instinctively knows how to coil and strike, human beings naturally behave according to the sinful nature they inherited from Adam. The Apostle Paul knew this. He reminded the church of Rome of this in chapter 5 when he said, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Our world is a sinful world filled with sinful people wrestling with a broken worldview that deviates from God's view either all the time or sometimes. And I'm one of those sinners. And so are you. Welcome to South Shores. In this series, Real Love, we've been trying to learn more how God's people, those people in a restored and a reconciled relationship to God through Christ, can better demonstrate the love of God, both to God and to other people of all different stripes. And this morning, as we wrap up this series, we're going to study, we're going to try how we can be better at loving those humans around us who find themselves in the realm of the LGBTQ world. Somebody after the last service came and asked me what those letters stand for. Depending on how current your definition is, lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, queer, and the plus sign is for any that weren't included. But this is a real situation in our world that involves real human beings. You may have a daughter who's told you she's dealing with same-sex attraction or who's told you that she's a lesbian. You may have a brother who's already in a romantic relationship with a man and he considers himself gay. You may have a co-worker who defines themselves as bisexual, that they're romantically attracted to both genders. Statistically, even in this room, some of us have personally struggled. Some of us have personally agonized over same-sex attraction or same-sex behavior. And in an ever-increasing number, we know people personally who are in a conflict within themselves, wrestling with a torturous, stressful feeling that the sex they were born with at birth doesn't match the gender that they feel today. This is a human reality but every person I just listed is a person. Every person I just listed is created in the image of God. Every person on this list is someone Jesus went to the cross to die for. Every person, every one of them, every one of us are people Jesus wants to draw to himself in love and forgiveness. But we need to remember every human being is a sinner. Every human being is a sinner. No one is undamaged from the scar of sin in our hearts and minds. That's true whether you are heterosexual or whether you consider yourself homosexual. Maybe there's a letter missing from that list, LGBTQ. Maybe it's the letter H. It could just stand for human because we're all broken. Every human being is a sinner 
who needs the rescuing forgiveness of Jesus and the transformation that comes from it. Every one of us needs to be reshaped, redirected according to Jesus and His Lordship. Now, I need to address some people in this room. If you are a straight person, you are heterosexual, bad news for you. That's not going to get you to heaven. Being outside the LGBTQ community does not give you a hall pass to Jesus. But one other question many people have is, does being gay send someone to hell? Does being gay send someone to hell? This worries us for all sorts of different reasons. I mean, is a bisexual person condemned because of their past behavior or maybe their current behavior? I think it's confusing because something we've heard for years is, well, homosexual sin is in the Bible. So, everyone like them, they're going to hell. Have a nice day. And they walk away. I think that's a pretty big stretch from what's really going on. It's less than a full picture. Here's what I mean. Yes, homosexual sin, homosexual behavior is listed as a sin in the Bible. That's true. Not arguing that. But is that an ace card to play? To win? No. Because you know what else is listed as a sin in the Bible? Adultery. Sex before marriage. Lustful thoughts and actions. Those are just straight sins. What we need to realize is that every sexual expression outside what God has declared good is sinful. Every sexual expression outside a husband and wife inside marriage, whether opposite sex or same sex, is sinful. I got some insights from a professor at Moody Bible Institute named Dr. Christopher Yuan. He spent about a decade in the gay lifestyle before he came to Christ and submitted his life and submitted his sexuality to Christ. He writes something in his book entitled Holy Sexuality, and he said this, God's standard for everyone is holiness. Regarding sexuality, it's either chastity and singleness or faithfulness and marriage. And by the way, he is not married. He is still deals with same-sex attraction, but he's chosen to honor Christ by not living according to his sexual desires. But let's go back to the list, the sins listed in the Bible. Because you know what else is there? Greed. You know what else is there? Divorce. Uh-oh. There's going to be people combusting around the room. You know what else is in there? Stealing. What about murder or pride? Those are all in the Bible. So, what, so which one of them sends us to hell? Does it work like a mousetrap where you commit the sin and bam, you're in hell? Is that how it works? Which is the sin that gets us? I don't think it's like that. I got some help from Tim Keller on this. He said this, what sends us to hell is self-righteousness, thinking that you can be your own Savior and Lord. And what sends you to heaven is getting a connection to Christ because you realize you're a sinner and you need intervention from outside. Man, that's good news for any person because all of us humans are broken and sinful and each of us strays from God's plan in different ways and every one of us needs to come back to submitting to Jesus in our behavior, in our identity, in our sexuality to the love and lordship of Christ. We need to be submitted to him in our behavior, our hearts, our bodies, all of it. And no matter your past, no matter your present today, 
Any of us can be made new going forward. Any of us. I need to quote a former professional sinner now. His name's Paul. He said this in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus would call any of us today or anyone that you love to walk away from any sin, any sin in your life that goes against what the Lord calls his people to. But what do we do with those we love who are caught up in sin or who are being tempted and they're buying into the lie of the enemy or the lie of our culture? What do we do? Here is your tip. Don't start out with their symptom. Don't start out with their sin. Can you imagine if a couple came to our church, let's call them Brian and Debbie, and during the meet and greet time, Derek forces you to stand up and say hi to people, and you meet Brian and Debbie, and you go, oh, great, you guys are new here, first time, great, great. where do you live? Oh, Dana Point, great, where do you, which Trader Joe's is yours? Awesome, great. Oh, oh, you guys live together? Oh, could you guys sit down for a minute? I need to read to you all the Bible says about premarital sex and God's plan for holy sexuality and show you where you stand as God's enemy. No? Okay. Uh, can I post it on your Facebook wall? How about an email? No? Oh, this is getting awkward now. I hope no one would use that approach with anyone. Not with a straight couple, not with a gay couple, not with any person coming through the doors of our church or the door of your house. Starting at the outside, starting with their symptom and then trying to work to the center is a poor way to go. Instead, start at the center and work out. Start where their heart is, start with the gospel, and then work out. I got some good resources from a pastor from England. His name's Sam Alberry. He is an Anglican pastor. Also, he has a very interesting testimony in that he has been same-sex attracted since he can remember. But, as a follower of Christ, he has decided to live his life in submission to God's plan for holiness and sexuality. And he wrote in a book, a very good book I'd recommend. It's a very small book, too. It's called Is God Anti-Gay? And he talks about this starting at the center thing and working outward. He said this, The center is the death and resurrection of Christ. This is where God reveals himself most fully. It's also where God most clearly shows his love, righteousness, power, and wisdom. This is what I want people to know. For them to be bowled over by the God of the cross and resurrection. And once they're gripped by this, to help them think through what trusting in this God will involve. What will need to be given over to him, including our messed up sexuality. But I want that conversation to take place in the context of the gospel, rather than start with their sexuality and try to get there from the gospel. They need to know who Jesus is before being landed with what he requires. There's little point in describing how to live in the light of God's grace if someone doesn't yet know God's grace. So when a gay couple starts coming to my church, my priority for them is the same as for anyone else, to hear the gospel 
and experience the welcome of a Christian community. I want that for South Shores too. Now let's turn a corner a little bit. From what I've seen on TV shows from the 1950s era, things were pretty clean and tidy then. Sin wasn't discussed. Sin wasn't presented. It was not even on the set. Even the married straight couple, Ricky and Lucy, slept in different twin beds. That's how clean and tidy it was. But if we're honest, life wasn't clean and tidy behind the set or in human hearts at that time. Fast forward to the 1970s and 80s when we only had 13 channels on our TVs. I think at that time there were like two four-letter words allowed on television. Pretty buttoned-up place, you might say. But we were seeing a rise in sin being portrayed on TV. And when it was, it was usually portrayed in a negative light. I'm here to tell you that light has burnt out. Sin being portrayed as sin has been erased almost entirely in our world. A cultural revolution has taken place. In the past, our culture as a whole generally accepted and rejected certain behaviors. This is because I believe we were riding on the energy of a 200-year-old wave, which is the Judeo-Christian worldview. But that Judeo-Christian worldview wave is just about out of energy. Our culture has had a massive and undeniable shift. The entire idea of what is good has been flipped upside down. Our culture has become post-Christian. Post-Christian meaning we think we have graduated beyond needing the guidance of God. I picked up that term post-Christian from an author a mom and a wife. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. She lived as a lesbian for many years. She was also a professor at Syracuse University in the Women's Studies Department. She met a pastor because she'd written an article in the New York Times, and a pastor had written her a reply. And she's like, well, this is the smartest Christian I've ever met. And so she replied, and as the story goes, she was so intrigued by this guy that one day he invited her over for dinner with him and his wife, and she said yes, and she was going to get ready to whoop up on, upside his head verbally. Instead, she met the most welcoming couple she ever met, and over the course of three years, they led her to Christ. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she looked back at the writings and the claims of people like the Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, or the naturalist Charles Darwin, or the pseudoscientist Sigmund Freud, or the straight-up communist Karl Marx, and saw the impact that their input has had on our culture. And she wrote this, Our culture has arrived at the following definition of good. Good, now, is human autonomy. Good is leaving consenting adults and children to do what they feel is best. This, they think, is central to human flourishing and a healthy, happy world. Is that good, though? Is it good when seven billion people have seven billion different definitions for good? That's messy. That's complex. Or should God's people look to God to define what is good? 
well, as a result of moving past God, we've had a moral revolution. We have had a massive shift in worldview. Remember, worldview are the glasses through which you look at the world, how you look at reality. Let me explain what I mean by a moral revolution. There's a Canadian pastor named Tim Challies. He wrote this. He said, there are three marks of a moral revolution. This is in your notes as well. First one is this. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. Second one, what was universally celebrated is now, anyone? Condemned. Third one, those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. What used to be down is up. What used to be up is down. And the culture is no longer asking for us to be tolerant. They've changed the definition. Now the culture is demanding endorsement. Owen Strachan is a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. In a book designed for joy, he wrote this saying, Everywhere around us, our culture celebrates rebellion and celebrates narcissistic willfulness. Our culture is suffering. It's breaking down. Pastor Denny Burke recorded some of these ways it's breaking down in a book called Designed for Joy. He details some of the ways our culture, when it comes to sexuality and gender, is hooked to lies. We are hooked to untruths. We are latched onto things that don't correspond to reality. Our world with champions science is now pushing science to the side. So Pastor Denny highlighted some lies that our culture believes about gender and sexuality. First one, first lie, there is no difference between a man or a woman. Okay. Second one, you can change your gender if you want with no consequences. You can be attracted to whomever and whatever comes most naturally to you with no consequences. There are no responsibilities that come with being a man or a woman. Do whatever you want. If your heart feels it and wants it, it must be good. Gender is a spectrum and there's no connection to one's biological sex. This mess continues because people who agree with those things... People who see through an entirely different worldview will encounter people who don't and feel hated. They will feel rejected, and sometimes they'll be angry. But guess what, men and women of God? We must love them because they are people God made and Jesus died for, and we don't get to exclude them from our personal lives. And I want to focus on those who might be suffering under a weight a burden, maybe people who wouldn't choose it in a million years, but their minds are taken over by something that is almost torturing them. We must care for these people. This can happen to all of us when we're believing what is not true. Now, we need to understand some terms to know what people are wrestling with. The first term is delusion. A delusion is a fixed, false, specific belief. When a delusion is fixed, that means that person is certain of what they believe. And they can't be persuaded by anything. And and when it's false, that means it's not connected to reality. Now, there are precious human beings all around us in this room and beyond, those we know, those we don't, who are dealing with situations like this. And I need to give you some examples. And we need to love them if the Lord puts them in our path. But I need you to brace yourself. The examples I'm about to give are real, actual human beings. I did not make them up for effect. These are not 
abstract. This is not me trying to be absurd or funny. These are the struggles and pains of real, actual lives. There's a man alive today who's 30 years old who has a delusion that he is actually Jesus Christ and he lives his life trying to do that. That's delusion. There's another man who's 48 years old who lives his life as a six-year-old girl in every way, shape, and form. He is delusional. This third one, a man who's 26, he's in England, his name's Nick O'Halloran. He has a delusion that he is a disabled person. That he's trapped inside an able person's body. Both his legs are entirely functional, normal. However, inside there's a war going on and he considers himself a person with one leg and he lives like that when he can. He suffers. He literally suffers from something called body integrity identity disorder. He does not recognize his right leg as being his. He is so disgusted by his leg that he has sought to have it medically amputated. He's having trouble finding a surgeon to do it. Obvious reasons. But he can't find a doctor yet who's purposely willing to disable him by sawing off his leg. Nick O'Halloran is suffering He's suffering from a delusion. He's suffering from a psychosis. A psychosis is a severe mental disorder where where your thoughts and your emotions are totally disconnected from external reality. And Nick is suffering. And you know what Nick doesn't need? A doctor who's finally willing to cut off his leg. Nick needs truth and compassion and love. He needs counseling. He needs help. He needs to work through this mental roadblock and get back to a healthy reality. And none of the people I've listed have a healthy connection with reality. All of their struggles are signs of a mental challenge. We want these people to be, have lives that are ordered and healthy. But instead, they are locked into a mental prison. We cannot ignore people like this. There are other people who deal with body dysmorphia, a total disgust or dissatisfaction with their own body and the perception that their body is flawed or defective. Anorexia would fall into this category. And more and more today, we are encountering people who deal with gender dysphoria, the feeling of distress or discomfort because in their mind, there is a difference between their perceived gender and their biological sex. Over in England, there's an organization called The Fuel Project, and they are Christ lovers who are dedicated to pursuing truth and helping people find truth. Their mission is to push people towards a life that nourishes them, sustains them, and encourages them. And they had a staggering hypothetical to consider. If you went to the doctor today and asked your doctor, he or she, to cut off your arm or leg, they would say no for obvious reasons. That is a request that a healthy person does not ask. But in today's day and age, if you request that healthy breasts be cut off or healthy reproductive organs be amputated or augmented, they'll say yes. And they'll even say that it's good that it's healthy, 
They'll recognize you as something that is now celebrated in places as transgender. But imagine approaching a doctor saying, will you cut off my arms or legs? And the doctor says, no way. You have delusional thinking. Okay, then will you cut off my breasts or my genitals? Hey, sure. Not only will I do it, I will applaud you. Our culture has gone so mad, they've begun encouraging children as young as six to pursue transgenderism, both socially and chemically, forever affecting their body. And whether you are on the political left or right, it doesn't matter. If someone's mind has convinced them that they are actually Jesus or a seven-year-old girl or disabled or a different gender from your sex, we cannot, as truth seekers, applaud that. We cannot encourage people towards what's stealing their mental and spiritual health from them. However, we must love them. We must listen to them. We must include them in our lives. We must walk with them, eat with them, speak with them, live life alongside them. If we reject them due to their delusion, that would abandon our main job as Christ followers, which is to, as Jesus said in John 13, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All humanity has suffered from the fall. Sin, born in the heart of every human, every one of us, However, some people among us are burdened with an even more confused mind, one removed from reality, removed from truth, removed from health. We cannot write them off. If we're going to proclaim the gospel, we have to do it in our deeds and our words, all with the heart that each one of us deserves hell. Now, some of you are thinking this morning, okay, Eric, great. How can I love my LGBTQ neighbor? without misleading them into thinking I approve of everything they do? That's not a good question. It's not a good question. Here's why. No one approves of everything other people do. The better question is, which is in your notes, is how can my neighbors know that I am a safe person to talk to? How can they know that? And the answer is by loving the sinner and hating your own sin. Loving the sinner and hating your own sin. Here's what I mean. You, need, you and I, both of us, we need to be as put off by our own sin, our own failure, our own browsing history, as we could ever be about somebody else's sin. When we do this, we don't stand above people looking down. We sit with them in needing a Savior. I love what Jesus said in Mark 9. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Derek mentioned this week that we need to center those we love in the gospel as much as we need to center ourselves in the gospel. That way we don't get ahead of the grace we all need. Now, 20 years ago, you could disapprove of someone's behavior and they might still feel like you liked them. That's changed. Rosaria Butterfield wrote this. She said, in today's cultural mind, to refuse to accept and approve of those who identify as LGBTQ is from their perspective to deny their rights to determine for themselves what personhood means. So the question we have to ask ourselves in this worldview divide is, whose image do we truly bear? Is it the image of God or is it the reflection of our sexual autonomy? Because of Jesus and his love for us, our love for others must convince them that we love them as people, 
even when they are living incongruently with God's design for them or God's desires for them. We must include them, eat with them, invite them into our lives, get to know them, start at the center with the gospel and follow Jesus as he leads you to the edges of their life. And we need to stay patient. It might take longer than our building project. (laughs) Don't dismiss anyone. I'm going to conclude with this. There's a great pastor named J.D. Greer. He wrote an article that I'm stealing from completely for this conclusion, and I think it's just a great way to button up this discussion. He said, repentance for the gay or lesbian person looks fundamentally the same as it does for the straight or religious person. God, I'm sorry for elevating my desires over your will, for attempting to define my identity apart from your design for me for seeking satisfaction and self-fulfillment rather than from giving glory to you. I recognize Jesus as Lord and turn over control to him. That's what repentance looks like for gay, straight, rich, poor, young, old, Jew, Gentile, black, or white person. We all come to Jesus in the same way. The good news is Jesus came to save sinners, all kinds. And as the church, this truth should define the way we interact with gay and lesbian people as we communicate to them, God loves you. We don't believe your sexuality defines you. We love you and we want to talk with you with a spirit of grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you more than ever. And as our lives are increasingly being surrounded by people who are In this realm, Lord, would you help us to be your missionaries of love and grace and truth? Lord, help us. Give us the strength, the wisdom we need to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves, to speak the truth in love, be willing to give up our comfort, to walk a long road with somebody that they might one day, perhaps, if you see to it, Lord, bring them from death to life. And once that happens, to begin reshaping them in the image of your Son. Please do that in your church in a new way this morning, Lord. Be be among us in power in your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name.